Hi there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student, back for another episode or installment in uh, the daily life of a medical student at the, at the Utah State Hospital. have two students here with me today. Let's do some introductions. Julia? Hi, I'm Julia. I'm a third-year medical student at Rocky Vista. A proud member of uh, the group I sometimes refer to as the Jays. <laughs> I think right. I mentioned yesterday that you are referred to as the Jays as if it happens everywhere, but no. <laughs> <laughs> and Jonathan. And I'm Jonathan Hansen. I'm also a third year medical student and I'm interested right now in going into ear, nose and throat. Tell me why you're thinking about ENT as a specialty. So actually uh, medicine wasn't my original career choice when I first went to college. I was a classical singer and that's what I wanted to do. And then I, um, I saw a lot of ENTs while I was doing my, my work as a classical singer. And then just that, that has stuck in as an interest. Okay, now um, I think you might be the, one of the few students that has told me about some of the flaws that we have in the podcasts. And, and, and just to be clear, I know they're there, right? <laughs> this isn't a surprise. This is uh, uh, a um, low-budget production designed to help medical students have a chance to maybe learn when they don't always have that opportunity. <laughs> Suddenly it makes sense to me all of the things that you're hearing in the background <laughs> on the podcast, right? All the jingling of our keychains and everything. The zipping, <laughs> the, the setting down of phones. phones. Um, I've got a, uh, a little drawer underneath the desk here that sometimes I bump with my knee. My jacket rustles, right? You're, you've heard all of those things. I do. I pick up on those. <laughs> well, I didn't, I didn't know that you were a classical singer. Very, very cool. The things that you learn about students, and, and quite often students uh, share these things with me, like the day they leave, and I'm like, well, <laughs> could, could you have told me a little sooner, right? And, and when you were, you were seeing an ENT, was that for problems you were having because of the singing? Yeah, so I had um, silent GERD, and so reflux, and so it was affecting my, my voice, and so it was hard for me to sing at that point. I was in a couple shows at the time, and it was hard for me to perform every night when... I um, was having acid reflux. A lot of it was because we were eating late, you know, after the show, things like that. Um, so they put me on some medications and I stopped eating late and things got better from there. Um, but I did have to go to a speech pathologist and try and rehab my voice because some of the muscles were, were weak from compensation that I was doing. Interesting. And we're going to talk about an interesting link between uh, reflux well, we might mention it and the topic today. Yep. How about introducing the topic today and letting us know why you chose this topic? Yeah, so today we're going to talk about um, sleep apnea, more so obstructive type. There are different types of, of sleep apnea. And I was actually diagnosed with a mixed type of central and obstructive sleep apnea. And it was kind of a, a chance finding I got some routine blood work done, a CBC done, and they saw that I had high red blood cells, and so they said to me, hey, we need to check this out. And I thought to myself, oh no, I have some tumor that's secreting EPO, or I have you know, polycythemia vera, I need to go get this figured out. But it ended up just being that I had some sleep apnea going on in some hypoxic events. Isn't that amazing? Because I, I wondered how that would have been identified. 
um, quite often our spouses, uh, significant others, people that are sleeping by us say, oh, by the way, did you know that you stop breathing all the time during the night? Did you have that kind of... Uh... Um, my wife said that I snored and she recorded me a couple times, but to me it didn't sound like snoring, it just sounded like heavy breathing. And I was like, oh no, that's just me heavy breathing, but it definitely was me snoring because I would have those stop breathing moments during my sleep. So you knew you had cancer, but you were in denial about <laughs> sleep apnea. Yep, exactly. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> Fascinated how this works. So uh, Julie, I think you have a case scenario for us. Is that right? Yeah. So I kind of like pulled together a little bit of a case scenario from what you'll see, um, mostly focusing on the psychiatric um, side effects of sleep apnea. So kind of something you'll see is a man in his 50s. He's experiencing chronic fatigue, poor focus, depressed mood. The fatigue is starting to affect his work and life. Um, he ends up losing his job. He's having marital difficulties. He thinks that his wife doesn't want to sleep next to him anymore because she's sick of him. She reports that it's due to the snoring and the fact that he doesn't sleep well. He states that he also kind of wakes up a lot in the night and doesn't sleep very well also. Um, and then he'll also have a history of hypertension, a high BMI, and this is most likely going to be a patient of male gender. Um, and that kind of case scenario, I guess I can give you a second to think of what you think it would be. In Depression. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. that's what they're trying to lead you to believe with, you know, his Siggy Caps, you know. Um, Low energy fatigue. Yeah, symptoms. Difficulty with concentration, focus. Totally. We are missing a couple of things in that presentation. I think one of those is subjective report of depression. Mm -hmm. um, if we go back to some of the mnemonics like DICE's gaps, right? We don't have mm -hmm. the full five. And we, I think we've had examples in the past with various podcasts where we talk about depression, how having those five criteria is very important. Mm -hmm. And of course, SIGI caps or DICE's gaps are both uh, mnemonics for that. Is there more to this case uh, presentation, Julia? No, not that. Not besides the fact that the answer would be depression due to another medical condition, and that condition being sleep apnea. Interesting. Or if you were given the opportunity, sleep apnea is also in the DSM-5. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Okay, so very, very good. Depression due to a medical condition, yeah. and the medical condition can be filled in. Now, one of the other, uh, there are a couple of other situations where we might feel, or we might see people that fall asleep easily. So if you were to have another case scenario, you might have somebody who is having problems with focus, concentration, has hypertension, and is falling asleep easily, right? And you'd need to figure out the difference between that and what other condition. Go ahead, Julie. You, you know it. <laughs> it would be narcolepsy. Uh-huh. And what might give you some clues about the difference between narcolepsy and obstructive sleep apnea or central sleep apnea? So that would be something like cataplexy or weakness with excitement or um, roused emotions. Strong emotions leading to weakness, right? And and I, I just have to say, I find it so interesting. I've talked about this a number of times before, how our uh, male and female medical students are very similar, or and I'm sorry, very, very different in their willingness to jump in and answer a question. And Julia, you knew that, that 
answer. And yet you were kind of just sitting back, letting letting Jonathan go ahead and... Under the table, she motioned to me that I should go ahead. I had the stage yesterday, and I'm, I'm giving it to him today. Fair, fair enough. Uh, so narcolepsy would be one of the other kinds of things to think about with sleep disorders. And maybe one other condition we should throw in the mix. Uh, I think this is one of the songs that we use in the psychopathology lectures, right? We talk about uh, circadian rhythm sleep disorders. And specifically, we talk a little bit about shift work, right? So you have to make sure that you understand the, the sleep cycles, the work cycles, the, the awake and asleep cycles when you're starting to assess these kinds of things. And if you do have a circadian rhythm sleep disorder, you should have some sort of clue about a job that takes somebody away for shift work or you might even have something that's a phase delay where you have somebody that that every day they they stay awake a little bit longer and wake up a little bit longer the next day another one that they pointed out yesterday in our didactics was insomnia and with insomnia it's that you can't fall asleep but you're tired and so this is different than sleep apnea where you're tired and you can fall asleep or like narcolepsy where you're tired and you can fall asleep with insomnia, you're tired, but you don't necessarily, you're not able to fall asleep. Very, very good distinction. So let's talk a little bit about what it means to have sleep apnea. First of all, we looked at an article from, uh, I want to say the American Association of Sleep Medicine. Is mm-hmm. that right? So the practice guidelines, this is the Kapoor article from 2017. And they had three strong recommendations, and it seemed like these really almost completely revolved around how we diagnose sleep apnea. After that, the recommendations kind of got a little softer. So tell me about how you diagnose sleep apnea. Yeah, so some of those strong recommendations um, were the clinical tools like questionnaires and things like that not be used to diagnose it, but we're going to use an at-home sleep test or an overnight polysomography. in a clinic or um, the second one is that um, they want to use a CPAP device I think was the other one Um, sorry go ahead yeah I was gonna say I think so first of all polysomnography or home sleep apnea testing HSAT Mm -hmm. polysomnography is the gold standard yes that is the best way to diagnose obstructive sleep apnea and central sleep apnea Home sleep apnea testing is also very good, but if I understand correctly, it's missing one component, and that is um, when we think about obstructive sleep apnea or central sleep apnea, there are two aspects to that. One is apnea, and one is hypopnea, and those are captured, I think, in the home sleep apnea testing but cortical arousals, because the polysomnography includes essentially an EEG kind of approach with the leads to the, to the brain, you don't get the same evidence about the cortical arousing with the home sleep apnea test, I think. Yeah, they can't tell what stage of sleep you're in during um, the at-home version. And so you need to go to a sleep clinic in order to get that diagnosed. Now, because there are some limitations to the home test, there, if it's negative, in some cases they recommend referral then to the lab for polysomnography. Yeah. And then the last uh, recommendation I, I saw was um, something about opioids, insomnia, 
cardiorespiratory disease and neuromuscular weakening, maybe being other caveats for not using home sleep apnea testing, but going straight to polysomnography. But I'm not sure I understood that very well. Exactly. It's basically if you have some other comorbid condition that could um, interfere with the testing, you need to go in for a polysomnography. And, and really, hypopnea events are a 3% change in oxygen, right? Yep. Cortical arousals. And apnea is stopping breathing for 10 seconds. Yep. And so okay. both of these are considered um, on the apnea-hypopnea index. And so they'll measure these events um, with AHI, which is the apnea-hypopnea index. And so greater than five um, per hour with snoring or daytime sleepiness is going to be diagnostic of sleep apnea. And does that count heavy breathing? <laughs> yes, according okay. to my wife. <laughs> and then the second thing you're going to say, I interrupted. Yeah, so then it's further categorized um, into different severities. So mild is going to be anywhere between um, 5 and less than 15. Moderate sleep apnea is going to be 15 to 30. And then anything above 30 events is going to be severe sleep apnea. And that's recorded by polysomnography. Um, most often is going to capture those um, distinctions. There are a lot of physical complications of sleep apnea. I think I was um, hoping that my ignorance of my recently diagnosed sleep apnea wasn't going to hurt me very badly. I'm afraid it might have. Tell yeah. me about the things that may have been causing in me. Well, so some associated symptoms that they found is you may have insomnia just because you can't go deep enough into sleep because your body won't let you. And so you feel like you're constantly waking up at night. So it's more the can't stay asleep subtype of insomnia. Um, you also can get heartburn, um, noctiuria, or getting up to go to the bathroom, morning headaches, dry mouth, erectile dysfunction, decreased libido, hypertension, uh, coronary artery disease, some um, heart failure, stroke, you're seven times more likely to get in vehicular crashes, you have neurocognitive decline, specifically Alzheimer's type, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, pulmonary hypertension, right-sided heart failure, and depression. So there's quite a lot of associated co comorbidities that go along with, with sleep apnea. Now, generally speaking, when I see somebody list that many associated <laughs> conditions, I think somebody's trying to sell me a multivitamin. <laughs> exactly. Right, or an essential oil, right? Take this, this snake is oil. good for what ails you. And... I was surprised at how many things seem to be cause how many things seem to be worsened or linked to uh, obstructive sleep apnea, and it's not clear to me that we were able to find cause to those things. We just found that it seems to increase the rate of those things. Yeah. So the risk of you uh, getting those things is is increased. Um, specifically, some of the ones that we saw were depression, um, heart-related things like hypertension and coronary artery disease, stroke, um, and metabolic syndrome were the, the big ones. Oh, and Alzheimer's disease. And Alzheimer's, yeah, that's... <laughs> Another big one. Uh, so physically, when we think about something that explains this conglomeration of symptoms, this constellation of symptoms, what I saw were 
four or five different things. And I, some of them made some sort of sense to me, some of them didn't, right? So in terms of hypoxia, you have cell death, whether that's neuronal cell death, whether that's vascular death associated with insufficient oxygen in your brain uh, or in your heart, whatever the case may be, that makes some sort of sense. Hypercapnia, I couldn't quite track why that was affecting all of these different kinds of organs. Um, Sleep fragmentation, there's some. Uh, there's a case to be made that sleep fragmentation limits the ability of the brain to uh, eliminate APP, which is one of the precursor molecules to A-beta uh, amyloid, right? And maybe that it uh, also increases the amount of APP in the brain. Uh, maybe it uh, causes phosphorylation of the tau protein, perhaps by fragmenting sleep, but the pathophysiology of that was not well described. I think that's beyond the scope of the articles we're looking yeah. at. The, the ones that I saw as well were oxidative stress, you know, from the hypoxia and from the increased CO2 um, and inflammation is, you know, that's what those lead to. The other thing that I saw that didn't I didn't understand is intrathoracic pressure swings. Was there any explanation as to why that was pathologically so damaging to the body? Um, I didn't see why it was so damaging. I saw one of the causes was, you know, the Golgi tendon organs that um, are being reset inside of your respiratory uh, muscles. And that's what's causing the pressure differential is that reflex that you're getting. Um, but I didn't see why it is so damaging to the system. We've looked at heart rate variability a couple of times in the last week, and perhaps it has something to do with that. Yeah. But I, I wasn't sure. Now, the other thing that it talked about was increased sympathomimetic, sympathomimetic activity. Yeah. So I, I found that really interesting because there was a study that was done that they found that there was an increase of urine catecholamines. And so this led to hypertension and um, an overall sympathetic drive in, in the patient that they have an increase in this fight or flight uh, mentality. So perhaps one of the explanations for some of the anxiety symptoms? Anxiety, depression, and the heart-related symptoms. I want to go back to the late 1980s. Okay. We're going to talk about um, a study done in Wisconsin, I believe, mm -hmm. called, based on a group called the Wisconsin Sleep Cohort Study. Tell me a little bit about that study. Yeah, so they followed quite a few patients for a number of years. About um, They followed them for at least eight years, um, and they would check in uh, occasionally. And so most of them would uh, check in at least within the 8.7 years that a lot of these studies um, mentioned and referenced. And so there were a mixture of men and women, um, most of them between the ages of 40 and 70. And so high prevalence of, of sleep apnea or at least sleep disordered breathing in this cohort. Now, if I understand correctly, they had over 4,500 polysomnography studies done. That's right. That's and a lot. That is a lot. Um, so that it was a good database for people to mine for these different studies to, to see some of the comorbidities that we're um, seeing in these disordered breathing. My impression was this study that we looked at, I think it was young in 94. Uh, this is, in my mind, one of the early studies looking at 
Uh, so sort of the demographics and the prevalence of obstructive sleep apnea. That was, this population may not be fully generalizable. It was a population of working individuals, so there may be different, uh, more severe sleep apnea in populations that weren't able to maintain employment, right? Mm-hmm. And, and if I understood correctly, this was a group that was studied every four years with follow-up polysomnography, and so they had about 1,500 subjects, and over 20 years, almost, uh, they lost obviously a number of these to follow-up, but I was surprised at how many they maintained in follow-up and how many polysomnographies they were able to do with all the various patients. Yeah, it's incredible. Great data. Now, the first study we looked at, they said about 9% of women and about 24% of men have sleep apnea, at least mild. Yes. And they said weight is the issue. Yeah, and they also linked it to increasing rates of obesity. They also saw increasing rates of um, sleep apnea as well was linked to that. And then Papard went back to the same database, right? So the Young st- uh, article was about, I think, four to eight years into the study. Yep. And so there had been uh, many people who had had either one or two of the uh, polysomnography studies. And then by 2010, they looked at the data again. This is Papard looking at the Wisconsin Sleep Cohort Study. And they're making a similar case, right? In the first study, it was very interesting. Young was very adamant. He said, age doesn't matter. It's all about weight. Mm-hmm. But the second study said gender and age matter. Yep. So as men age, the risk of sleep apnea escalates. Yeah. And for women, as they age and their BMI goes up, that mattered. Yep. So postmenopausal women are also at risk. And and that seemed to be their outcome. But they still made the case that BMI was important and probably more important at a younger age unless you were female. Yep. And, okay. Um, they also saw that pretty much after the age of, you know, somewhere between 50 and 70, most people have sleep apnea, some sort of snoring going on. Even though they made the case that obstructive sleep apnea is all about weight, that doesn't seem to be fully accurate. No, because um, even you know pretty young people who don't have high BMIs get sleep apnea, um, and a lot of that is central sleep apnea that, that most of them get. It can also be obstructive sleep apnea, is uh-huh. my understanding. From it can be from craniofacial abnormalities or from you know enlarged tonsils, different things like that can also cause obstructive sleep apnea. Central sleep apnea is a little bit more complicated. Yeah. As I read through this, I was I kind of had this aha moment. I realized that these sensors in the medulla oblongata have to get information back from all parts of the body. And based on um, CO2 partial pressures mm-hmm. in the blood, they then make an adjustment. Yeah. So in the, in the brain, we have our CO2 um, drive that's really driving ventilation, where our carotid bodies are focused more on the percentage of oxygen that's in our blood. And so both of those are driving that ventilation uh, need for our bodies. And so if there's, you know, a disconnect between those two, or even if, you know, they're set differently just because of how, how we're each made, um, it can cause a huge effect on sleep apnea. 
I was left with this picture of, of an oscillation that could sometimes be exacerbated. And for those of you that are watching this podcast, <laughs> you can see my finger going up and down, and that oscillation can get exacerbated by the delays in feedback. So the, if the medulla is not getting, uh, if blood flow is coming back slowly from the periphery, you have a slow respo slower response to hypercapnia, and then you have this uh, respiratory drive to catch up, and then suddenly you have, you know, uh, a very high level of oxygen in your blood, and then the compensatory mechanism for that kicks in, right? It's, yep. it's, it's sort of like um, a yo-yo effect you can't keep up with. Exactly. In and, some cases. And that's a lot what you see in the central sleep apnea. And there are different subtypes of the central sleep apnea. So there's the idiopathic type. There's the chain stokes breathing, which is associated with um, heart failure. Um, there's opiate, you know, depression of, of the respiratory drive. And then there's also obesity depression of the, the respiratory drive because the respiratory muscles can't keep up. One of the things that I saw was something about altitude-related chain stokes. Yeah. It, it, how high does that have to be? I, I didn't see a specific number. I think it was somewhere above 4,000 uh, feet above sea level, but I don't remember off the top of my head. So I didn't, I, you, you read this much better than I did. I never saw a number anywhere that talked about this. So it made me wonder if the population in places like Denver, the Intermountain West where our populations live above you know, 4,000 feet quite commonly, if we would see some sort of central sleep apnea that would be endemic to the region. And we do see that um, specifically in CBCs, um, that red blood cell count, hematocrit, and um, hemoglobin count are <coughs> a little bit elevated because of the uh, altitude. Bless you. Thank you. <laughs> um, the other thing that surprised me was that opioids, there's a case to be made that if somebody is being treated for pain with opioids, they're probably not helping themselves because of the disruption of sleep caused by opioids. That over 50% of people that are on long-term opioids are having sleep apnea. Yep. Um, it's, it's a real thing. Um, I was in a car accident and was put on morphine during that time. And I just remember the nurse coming in over and over reminding me to breathe because my central sleep apnea was, or central apnea, I guess it was kicking in and I just decided it wasn't <laughs> something I needed to do. <laughs> One of the most challenging parts of the article that talked about the pathophysiology of central sleep apnea was the idea that central respiratory events can lead to obstructive respiratory events and vice versa. Yep. And I tried to understand that. I couldn't. Can you make heads or tails of that for me? So I think what they're saying is, you know, the hypoxia that's caused from the central events can cause muscle weakening because of the um, you're increasing the um, CO2 and then the acidic environment in your body. And so the muscles um, relax and weaken because of the homeostatic load that's on them or the, the allostatic pressure that's on them. And then they lead to an obstructive event and then that can uh, reset the brain, which then worsens the central sleep apnea. And so they feed off of each other. Did you track that, Julia? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> I got lost, but the answer is yes. Yes. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> if you're ever asked a yes or no question by a physician, take advantage of it until they ask you a very specific <laughs> question, right? Um, gee whiz. 
there seem to be only a few places where biomarkers are helpful in medicine. Mm -hmm. In psychiatry, we have some tests that look at uh, CYP450 enzyme activity at baseline in our patients and then try to match antidepressants based on that, that uh, profile. Dementia has a lot more biomarkers, and one of the things that I was unaware of was the number of biomarkers that seem to be in the process of development for obstructive sleep apnea, and I was even more surprised by some of the overlap between biomarkers for uh, dementia and mild cognitive impairment and obstructive sleep apnea. Yeah, you gave me an article by Boreal in 2018. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, there's a. They found a big overlap between um, obstructive sleep apnea and dementia, specifically Alzheimer's type, where they found uh, beta amyloid, tau proteins, specific cytokines, um, acute phase reactants, homocysteine, oxidative stress markers that were all elevated in both dementia and in um, obstructive sleep apnea. And they also saw that when you were using a CPAP, those seemed to get better. And so they hypothesized that um, it also helped with um, dementia. And some of the other studies that we saw showed that patients with dementia that have sleep apnea, um, have both at the same time, um, seem being on a CPAP seems to slow down the progression of uh, the damage that has been done. It doesn't reverse it, but it, it slows it down. In terms of mild cognitive impairment, which is considered to be a pathway to dementia, yeah. it may even reverse that, mm-hmm. but it's not. the data is not clear. I thought it was interesting how the biomarkers aren't entirely clear to us. For example, there may be a time when uh, APP is elevated early in the illness, drops down as uh, APP gets cleaved, and uh, A-beta now starts being uh, glomming onto the plaques in the brain, right? Yep. And so you might see a drop in uh, A-beta 42, maybe particularly, and uh, then a dramatic change over time, right? It's, it seems like there's there's a lot more to the story than simply changes in biomarkers at this point. And, and so I think the take-home point is listen with interest, don't memorize this. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's something interesting to follow because um, as we see dementia progress and follow these biomarkers and see how it's linked to sleep apnea. Depression seems to be pretty closely linked. Now this is a podcast that focuses on mental health for students uh, trying to learn principles that will help them pass their shelf exam. Were there any kinds of principles associated with obstructive sleep apnea that were reviewed in the tests and the question banks that you guys saw? Say that one more time. The link between depression and uh, obstructive sleep apnea. You mentioned the case and the, yeah. the principle that was tested was depression due to obstructive sleep apnea. Were there any other kinds of principles that were tested regarding the link between depression and obstructive sleep apnea? I think this is like one of the only specific test questions about this concept, but it does talk about just kind of like the overall symptoms of impaired concentration, irritability, low mood that come along with obstructive sleep apnea. I think one of the reasons why we may not have more questions about that was because one of the most disappointing things you and I found as we read through the literature was 
CPAP or reversing the sleep apneas doesn't really change a whole lot in depression or in many of these comorbidities. That kind of sucks. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, there's a lot of ways to treat uh, sleep apnea. They talked about positional therapy, weight loss in general, which takes a long time, oral appliances, uh, medication therapy, um, CPAP, which is the gold standard, and then upper airway surgeries. And all of the data that we saw was pretty much the damage has been done. Now let's try and slow things down and not make it worse. The, the only places that I think we saw um, reversal that maybe mattered was if we saw cognitive changes that had started being on CPAP for at least three weeks, fairly rapid improvement in cognition. Yeah. Right? Uh, the other thing that you found was that if patients had severe depression, CPAP seemed to help improve severe depression, but not mild or moderate depression. Yes, so if they showed um, severe symptoms of depression, so all of the, at least five of the depressive symptoms, right, but they were severely affecting their lives, CPAP did seem to help. Yeah. One of the other things I think I saw was that if you can reverse some of some cardiopulmonary congestion, then you can actually improve sleep apnea. Mm -hmm. Did I read that correctly? Yeah. So they, they kind of play off each other as well. Um, the cardiopulmonary, if you can relieve some of those, those symptoms, it does seem to improve the sleep apnea and vice versa. That as you improve the sleep apnea, it is going to help with the, the severe cardiopulmonary issues as well. I was, I was pleased to see that and I was left hopeful that that maybe, you know, CPAP will reverse all that ails me as I start that in the next week or so. The one symptom that it did help significantly was tiredness. And so that's, that's a good thing. Everybody says that. <laughs> but it doesn't seem, it, it does it, I, did you find anything about mortality changing? Yeah, um, mortality didn't really change either. So there was a study done that um, all-time mortality was significantly increased um, one and a half times that of a normal individual with, um, if you have sleep apnea, but it doesn't really change with the, the CPAP treatment. Okay, hold on. I need to back up. You said normal people don't have sleep apnea. I'd like to think <laughs> I'm normal. I know. I think we're working on language quote, that changes that. Normal people. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> patients with and without, I think I've is the way it. we're supposed okay. to say that. Yeah. I'm still working on that too. Uh, typical. My, but even that doesn't seem to be the language that makes sense. Um, so we've talked about a bunch of things here. We've talked about uh, the differential that you might need to think about on test questions that pop up on your exams, on your shelf exam. We've talked about the consequences of sleep apnea, which is like this list that goes on and on and on, right? Um, we've talked about some of the limitations of treatment with CPAP. It seems to maybe stop the pro progression of the conditions that are associated without full reversal. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about um, the relationship with depression. There's a lot more out there. Yes, there's a lot of data on, on this topic. What is it that we haven't talked about that we should mention? Um, the last thing that I just want to mention, even though we talked about how doing questionnaires isn't really helpful. Um, there is one questionnaire that seems to be useful if the person comes in with being tired 
and you can't rule anything else out. Um, and that's the stop bang criteria, <laughs> and it's a mnemonic. By the way, I love this because it's actually a test. It's, it's not just a mnemonic that's used by medical students. This is actually a screening tool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, tell, tell us about the stop bang. Yeah, so the stop bang, it stands for, uh, the S is for snoring, T for tired, uh, O is for observed apneas, so that's at night, um, someone tells you that you stop breathing. Uh, P is for pressure of your blood, B is for BMI, A is for age, so older people are more susceptible. Uh, N is for neck circumference, and then G is for gender, specifically male sex. So I didn't find a lot of data on, on neck circumference in what I read. I didn't find that in the position papers. So it's a lot more on the surgical side of things um, that if you have a visible obstruction on um, imaging, you're going to see that more in the neck circumference. Okay. And then the other thing that I think I, think I saw was um, that there are... Did, did we talk about all the treatments? Did we talk about the... Um, we didn't talk about the stimulation. Let's talk about the stimulation. Yeah, so that's one of the cutting edge treatments um, in the last 20 or so years that has come out um, is the hypoglossal nerve stimulator. And so we've seen a lot of other stimulators um, come out, the vagal nerve stimulator for epilepsy and um, there's some... And depression. And depression. And there's uh, other nerve stimulators that are for, you know, incontinence, things like that. And so they thought, why not try it for the hypoglossal nerve um, and get that tongue out of the way during sleep? And so it, it seems to be effective if the person fails CPAP, um, whether they won't wear it or it doesn't seem to be creating a big enough effect. Um, but it's about on par with upper airway surgery, but it has a better recovery time. So it does seem like it's going to be the, the new thing coming out. I, so my visit to my um, pulmonologist, I think is the way to refer to this, because I'm not sure it was a sleep talk. Uh, she told me, listen, the surgery, the neck surgery to increase the size of the hole in your throat. <laughs> uh huh. Uh, and there's a name for that. The uvulopalatopharyngoplasty. It seems like you're still missing a word in there. Was it UPP <laughs> something? Or UPPP. So it's the palatal pharyngo... I am missing one. <laughs> Gosh, I have it written down somewhere. Um, what she said was that it doesn't seem to have a good outcome on sleep apnea, so the hypoxic events uh, only change in about 30% of the patients. Yeah. And... Um, even then, CPAP seems to be impaired by that later, so it might interfere with a more effective treatment if you go down that pathway. Did you read anything that, that was consistent with what I was told? Yeah, so that seems to be the case that um, if you get the surgery, it can interfere with CPAP, and some people who get the um, surgery still need to be on CPAP because there's not a great enough change. Um, and so it seems to be only uh, marketed towards those people who fail the CPAP um, or there is a, a visible obstruction that it, like in children with large tonsils or 
um, tumors, upper or, tumors something. or something like that. And that is the UPPP, not just the the stimulator, right? Yes. Okay. And I was right. It was uvulopalatal pharyngoplasty. Of course you were right. Because the last P was plasty. Of course you were right. <laughs> and, and I'm the first to admit that I am wrong over and over and over. <laughs> I, I am wrong all the time. Uh, I try really hard to learn from my mistakes, though. UPPP. Yep. All right, so we've talked about now the various treatments as well. What else have we missed? I think we've hit all the, the major points that I wanted to hit today. It's a fascinating topic to me and kind of a scary topic because I, I think, how do you diagnose sleep apnea? Because it's not clear to me that snoring is enough. Perhaps the apneic events, if you have somebody who can watch you sleep, would be able to give some sort of clue. And, and apneic events, uh, let me see, make sure I'm using the right word. Apneic hypopneic index? Yeah, so apneic events are the pauses of up to 10 seconds, right? So you have somebody count and watch. But hypopnea wouldn't be obvious, right? It wouldn't have, I don't think, been obvious to anybody that uh, you know, maybe your or my oxygen was dipping down into the 70s at oxygen saturation rate was dipping down into the 70s at times, right? Yeah. And so it, it really, that stop bang criteria, um, you know, isn't useful for screening unless the patient is already showing symptoms like their daytime tiredness, you know, um, they do snore, things like that. It seems like that's one of those things uh, that we learned in uh, the science of medicine or statistics of medicine where our our initial suspicion changes the probability that the sensitivity, because it's it's a very limited screening test, becomes more useful, right? You have to have some preclinical suspicion before the sensitivity is enough for this to be useful. Yep. Okay. Julia, last thoughts on this? Uh, um, nothing particular, except that I will add that the stopping survey is actually also in the board prep, so that could come up as a question, I imagine. So something to also keep in mind. It is a cool mnemonic. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's kind of, it's almost a force, but it works. <laughs> yeah, I just think it's... Pressure uh, of the blood. <laughs> the clanging of it, right? Right. Yep. The, the, the sound of it. <laughs> and uh, Jonathan, anything that you'd like to add? Um, I'm just interested in to see where this um, research goes. Um, because I am, I have sleep apnea, I am in, invested in seeing how best to treat it and how best to prevent these other comorbidities. I look forward to seeing how you tackle it as well. I think ENTs can be involved in sleep medicine, particularly depending on where they end up practicing. So I wouldn't be surprised if this is something that you have a hand in treating at some point in the future. You're smiling and nodding and, and uh, <laughs> I'm not sure anybody can hear that. <laughs> That's, yes, smiling and not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the two of you have been absolutely a delight to have here <laughs> as students. You. Tomorrow will be your last day. Um, we will do our evaluations tomorrow. And, of course, there will be nothing but positive in those evaluations. Uh, again, can't tell you two how much I appreciate you two being here and the positive things that have been said about you by the staff members here already. And I look forward to tomorrow and hearing back at some point in the future where your careers end up taking you. Thank you so much. And on that note, team out. Team out. <laughs>